All right, everyone, welcome to the Above Average Football Fan Podcast for above average football fans and below average football fans who want to learn more about the game, or if you're a football junkie, this is the podcast for you. We're glad you're here, and we hope you enjoy it. All right, everybody, here we are for episode three of season two of the Slightly Above Average Football Fan Podcast. I'm here, as always, with my good friend and co-host, Thomas Bowen. What's up, Bowen? Hey, 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 man, it's finally here. First week of football, fired up. Let's get to it. Absolutely, man. We are here. Now we are getting into what we like to call our regularly scheduled programming. Each week, we will talk about the South Carolina game, the Clemson game, and then the game of the week. And this game, this week's game of the week that we chose was Miami versus Alabama. So we're going to start off with the Gamecocks. Obviously, we've already done a preseason um, preview of Carolina, so we're not going to go through that again. Um, the one thing I do want to hit on is obviously if you are in Columbia, South Carolina, and really if you're a Gamecock fan or a football fan from anywhere in the nation, you've seen a lot of stories lately about who will be starting quarterback for the Gamecocks for week one. His name is Zeb Noland. He was formerly as of, what would you say, Bowen, was it three weeks ago that he was a GA? Yeah, three to four. Yep. So now here's the thing. Stop this narrative of uncle Rico, like stop this nonsense. This guy played football as recently as June. Is that right, Thomas? Uh, yeah. End of May, early June, I believe. Yeah. So, I mean, this guy's played some football. He played at Iowa state. He played at North Dakota state. And I think he finished up at, uh, Sam Houston before we come into Carolina because of COVID last year, everybody got essentially a red shirt year. So he could have had another year of eligibility, decided it was time to start his coaching career. But, you know, because of the situation that Carolina is in with the fact that Luke Doty is injured. And of course you've had two big transfers, Ryan Holinsky and Jake Bentley who retired or transferred, excuse me, a year ago, he may have retired. He may have retired. Um, You know, so depth was not what Coach Beamer and Coach Satterfield wanted it to be. So they called Zeb in and got him ready. And guess what? He won the job. So let's stop pretending like this guy's been sitting on the couch eating potato chips for two years. And we called him out of the stands. This guy has, you know, played very recently. Here's the thing. He literally designed the playbook. Like he didn't come up with plays. He wrote it out. He diagrammed it. No one knows this playbook as good as him. That's a player other than, you know, Marcus Satterfield. And so, you know, I, I just, everybody with all this nonsense, just stop. And the last thing I'll say on it, and Thomas, I'll let you speak on it for a second. The other thing I, I'm tired of hearing is this is Colin Hill 2.0 for South Carolina. First of all, Colin Hill while he may have not been the most talented quarterback at South Carolina last year, was the most prepared and ready to play quarterback by all accounts. I don't care if you ask coaching staff. I don't care if you ask reporters. Everybody said he was prepared to play. And unfortunately, for reasons that we can debate and go around and round about, Ryan Holinsky wasn't ready. And of course, Luke Doty was a true freshman. So First, let's stop this Bobo brought his boy in and played him. I promise you, Mike Bobo didn't want to go 2-8 and last year any more than Will Muschamp did. So they didn't play a guy because they liked him. They played him because he thought he gave him the best chance to win. And this idea that Zeb is is very much a statue, stand-in-the-pocket guy, he's not going to confuse – no one's going to confuse him for Michael Vick, but he's also got a little bit more mobility than Colin Hill. Thomas, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, and you know, I think I think the the Colin Hill 2.0 narrative is is such a cheap take because you're exactly right. They could not be more different than they are. Um, I think it, Zeb is in a unique position because of the fact that he has essentially he's been a coach. He's been in those rooms with the coaches, and he's learned a lot of the inner workings of this offense as it is being designed. He's put together the playbook. I mean, you can't tell me that there's somebody on the team that knows that offensive playbook better than him. So there, there's a lot of there's a lot of positives coming out of it. There's a lot of good things that that we could have and things to look for. Um, again, it's it, it's always concerning. Everybody is gonna you know light the torches and get all fired up because oh it's the chicken curse again and it is what it is. But the bottom line is if if, if there was a game on our schedule for us to have to go to a GA or go to a, a scenario like this, this is the game to do it. I mean, no, again, no disrespect to Eastern Illinois, but we should be able to hand it off all night long and come out on top. So everybody just take a breath. It's going to be fine. And as the Cotton Gin, shout out to the Cotton Gin down in five points. I believe they're at Cotton Gin on all the social medias. They've become famous for their marquee sign about Carolina sports. They put up in Zeb, we trust. And that's just what we're going to have to do for week one. So as we talk about week one, Thomas already mentioned Eastern Illinois. Um, they played last week, and I guess everybody's kind of referring to that as week zero um, against Indiana State. And lost that game. They have lost 14 of their last 16 games. Um, they have come in, you know, obviously when you've lost 14 of your last 16, you're not exactly on a roll. Um, in watching that game last week, their offense is multiple. Uh, you'll see shotgun. You'll see pistol. You may even see some under center, but mostly shotgun. Um, this The offensive standout was their freshman wide receiver, um, Demetrius Sorry, I've lost his name. Demetrius Garrett. Garrett, thank you. And Demetrius is a freshman. He wears number 21 for anybody in the stands on Saturday looking for him. Here's the thing. He had five receptions for 116 yards. Heck of a game by him. He comes in at 5'11", 155 pounds. That is a concern if you're an Eastern Illinois fan when your best wide receiver is 155 pounds. So just going to say that on defense, mostly we saw if you were watching last week, four man fronts, a lot of cover three, cover four coverages. When they did blitz, I will say they brought pressure up the middle. And I'll talk about how later that can be a big impact negatively on an offense if you get there. But it's also a big risk reward because if you don't, guess what? Middle of the field's wide open for a post or an in or a dig. So, you know, that's my take there. Uh, their quarterback, who's got an awesome name, I believe it's Otto Kuhn. Is that how I say his last name, Bowen? Yeah, sounds good to me. So, I, Bowen, I, whenever I'm just going to digress for a second, whenever we start making merch for the show, the back of the T-shirt is going to be me asking you how to say a kid's name because I just feel like that happens a lot. I dig it. All right, so uh, Otto, when I watched him pass the ball, he had trouble getting the ball out past the numbers. If he's running a 10-yard out, 7-yard out, that ball's going to flutter. It's gone an arc and, you know, as a Gamecock, you got to hope that the DBs are going to be able to break on that ball, at least break it up, if not intercept it. On the offense and defensive line, South Carolina outweighs Eastern Illinois by around 20, 30, even 40 pounds in some situations. It's not always about size. It's about technique. It's about guts. It's about all that stuff. But 20, 30 pound, 40 pound disadvantage is, is not a great starting point. 
Yeah, and you know, one of the things you pointed out with uh, with Garrett really lighting it up. You're you're talking five catches for 116 yards, no touchdowns, and what that tells me right there, as somebody you definitely watched more of this game than I did, but that tells me right there that's probably a lot of busted coverages. Yeah, uh, especially due to the fact that he still didn't even get in the end zone. Five catches, 116 right. yards, no touchdowns. That's busted coverage. That's also probably uh, bad angles, poor fundamentals. Yeah. So I think it's going to be key to our secondary, keeping everything in front of them, playing with good angles and playing with good fundamentals. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. So with that, um, we're just going to move past that and really just say, and Thomas, I'll let you speak to this as well. This should be a major mismatch for the Gamecocks. I've read somewhere there's, you don't see a line for this game in most places, but of the few places I could find it, it had the Gamecocks uh, a 43 point favorite. And when you consider what our offense was last season and what we, all of the uncertainty coming in, that really does, you know, tell you a lot about what, you know, people who, who make lines, uh, who are much smarter than I am, think about this team. And so I think you just got to say, you know, this needs to be, if you're a Gamecock fan, this needs to be an easy night. This needs to be everybody comes off the bench. This needs to be Kevin Harris and and Marshawn Lloyd and all of those guys are sitting on the bench drinking Gatorade, laughing it up in the second half and fourth quarter. Again, no disrespect to Eastern Illinois, but they are coming in as it's just a sizable underdog. Yeah. And, you know, I, I heard a, a local radio show earlier today made a good point that said, you know, this is a game that as, as a Gamecock fan, if, if you are experiencing any sort of anxiety or, or those that Gamecock heartburn that we all know so well, that things are probably going very poorly. Um, so you're absolutely right. And there's a couple things that I noticed from them last week as well was, you know, all of their touchdowns in that 26-21 loss to Indiana State came on the ground. They were less than five yards out. It also looks like a little bit of a running back by committee. They didn't have a single running back over 60 yards uh, rushed for 125 as a team. So that's a little bit of running back by committee. And the fact that all of those touchdowns came deep in the red zone, I think that bodes well for the Gamecocks and for their front four. Uh but also one of the things that I was thinking about that is kind of a, a little bit of an X factor, if you will, not that there needs to be one in a game like this, but uh, I believe the announced attendance for the Indiana State Eastern Illinois game last weekend was 5,500. Mm. Um, so they're going to be going from 5,500, which is probably their, their typical MO and what they play in front of, to 80-plus thousand screaming Gamecock fans that have been starved for football for quite some time. Uh, so I think that could, uh, especially a night game at Williams-Brice, is going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to the atmosphere. I agree with you, and that is, that's going to be a big change. You're exactly right. All right, with that being said, we're going to move into our next game. Uh, we're looking at Georgia versus Clemson. Of course, last week in Episode 2, we did our Clemson preview, so we're going to hit more on Georgia. Before we jump on that, we recently were recording this Wednesday night. We There's been news coming out that Clemson may have some players, some starters out because of COVID or injuries, um, and you know, there's been – Rumors of that being a starting defensive lineman. Thomas and I have talked about how good the defensive line is for Clemson, so that would be a major blow to them. Another rumor, this one's the most unconfirmed one, is that Justin Ross, the wide receiver they just got back this year after a neck injury the year before that almost looked like his career was over, maybe have a foot injury and may not be playing. So just wanted to touch on that because that does have an impact on things. 
Yeah, and, and it's it's funny uh, because uh, I think you know for for what it's worth, the the uh, defensive lineman and then uh, one of their safeties being out. Uh, I think there's probably a little bit more truth to that than than Justin Ross. And and honestly, if it is true for Ross, I hate it for him because yeah. uh, he's a really fantastic receiver, and I was looking forward to seeing him break out this year, even you know as long as he doesn't do it against the Gamecocks, but. Uh, regardless, uh, that will be a huge blow if that is the case. And quite frankly, by the time this podcast comes out, that may either be 100% confirmed or completely refuted. Absolutely. And I agree with you. I hate it for Justin Ross, a kid who is amazing player and, you know, looked like he was having to end his football career, was able to get himself back to cleared. And now if he has another injury that, you know, hopefully if it is, maybe it's as not as bad as being reported and it's only a week or two or something like that, certainly not season or something like that. And, you know, I, again, we're Gar- Garnet and black runs through Thomas and I's veins. There are no doubt about that, but I'm not, I'm well past the days of, of being happy that any player is injured Clemson or otherwise. All right, so with that being said, we're going to move to Georgia. I'm going to start off talking about Georgia's uh, offense, and then Thomas will talk about their defense. On offense, their offensive coordinator is Todd Monk. Is it Munkin? Is that how I say that, Thomas? Munkin. Yep, that's right. All right, cool. All right, he's in his second year as OC at Georgia. Before that, um, he, in college, served as the OC for um, Oklahoma State back in 2011 and 2012. Uh, in 2012, Oklahoma State was had the number two passing game in college football. Um, he kind of bounced around for a little while after 2012, Became the made it up to the NFL level, became the offensive coordinator in Tampa Bay in 2018. Uh, the, they led the league in passing yards per game and were third in the league in total yards per game in 2018, um, which was interesting because they had both uh, good old Fitz Magic Ryan Fitzgerald and Jameis Winston uh, playing that season. So that was really interesting. In 2019, he moved on to Cleveland. Uh, things didn't go as well in Cleveland form. Um, Baker Mayfield was still learning the pro game. He did still throw for over 3,500 yards, but ends up that he comes to Georgia last year and really starts, you know, with a pro style offense when we hear pro style if you're me and thomas's age or older you almost think of under center two backs one tight end you know but it's really not that it is a pro style offense but it is more shotgun based they're going to get under center from time to time yes you'll see two backs you'll see a wing back but more of a shotgun based offense really heavy in the zone running scheme. We've talked about that in previous weeks, that that means it's more of a tidal wave. It's everybody has an area or a track and you follow it. And then off of that zone running scheme, they like to run a lot of play action. That's how they set up their passing game. In a lot of cases, they're going to roll out on little short boots for JT Daniels. And uh, saw a lot of that when they were playing Cincinnati in the peach bowl this past bowl season. And, Again, uh, they are a team that is running to set up the pass. They want you to have success on the ground to be in order to make you worry about that, and then they're going to start hitting play action over your head. That is what they want to do to Clemson in this game. And we can talk about a few individual players. I just mentioned JT Daniels, a quarterback, came in from Southern Cal, ended up starting the last four games of the year last year for UGA ended up with 10 touchdowns to two interceptions, really strong preseason second team, all American this year, or sorry, second team, all sec this year. Um, obviously a great running back in Zamir Thomas. 
Zamir White, yep. Zamir White. You're on fire. I'm I'm on a roll, man. And uh, also a second-team All-SEC back there. Very, very talented. George Pickens, second-team All-SEC wide receiver. And on the offensive line, they are returning four starters. So this is an offense that is in the second year, second year of a quarterback that's got a lot of experience, second year of an offensive coordinator. When you look at, I just mentioned a few of their talented players on offense and the returning of four starters on their offensive line, which really had a lot of success last season then this is a strong looking offense coming out of Athens to play Clemson up in Charlotte Thomas tell us a little bit about their defense yeah so the, uh, I'm I'm really looking at this Georgia defense to be especially halfway through the year towards the latter half of the year to be one of the top defenses in the country I mean this is a defense that you know number one run defense the last two years Gave up definitely a lot more passing yards, but I think Kirby Kirby Smart is known for selling out against the run. He is going to stop the run. If you're going to beat him, it's going to be through the air. Um, so they've really put a lot of emphasis on that. <clears throat> um, I believe last year, eight of their 10 opponents, they held a less than 100 rush yards. Um, led the SEC 3.2, I believe, 3.2 sacks per game, which is just phenomenal to have a defensive front that can pull that kind of weight. Uh, one of the weaknesses I would say with this Georgia defense is secondary, at least in some of the earlier games in the first part of the year, is going to be a little bit questionable. There's a lot of talent there, but I think it's going to take some time to come together as a unit. Uh, and one of the things when you've got a secondary like that, when when communication is lacking and they haven't fully meshed as a unit uh, communication can be bad. Third down, red zone defense can be a problem. So that's one of the things to look out for this weekend. If uh, if Clemson does when when Clemson does get down in the red zone and in third down defense, look for that in the secondary. Look for Tony Elliott and Clemson's offense to attack that secondary in those situations. Um, I will say though that the you know Kirby coming from that Nick Saban tree, and he's a he's a Nick Saban defensive disciple. Um, he, he runs a lot of the same schemes mm-hmm. as Saban does three, four, three, three, five, a lot of three man fronts, but with some extra edge pressure coming. So you're, it's, it's more like a four man front. Um, but Georgia's, uh, nose guard, nose tackle may be the best one in the game. Jordan Davis, the guy is ridiculous. Uh, and he is going to draw a lot of double teams. He's going to push Clemson's offensive line way, way back. And I think could really disrupt their running game a lot. Um, in that secondary that I mentioned earlier, that that could be a little bit questionable. They did lose six starters and or key reserves from that secondary, but they had some good fortune from the transfer portal. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, cornerback Darion Kendrick was phenomenal at Clemson. He transferred to Georgia, so he's going to be starting back there uh, and knows that Clemson offense probably better than anybody on that field. Um, cornerback. Tyke Smith, who's a West Virginia transfer, he is questionable. Uh, there are quite a few injuries that George is dealing with as well right now that I think people are probable, people are questionable. But Tyke Smith, the West Virginia transfer, th- this kid is the third best slot coverage grade in 2019 by Pro Football Focus. Physical, really good eyes and coverage. So I can look for him if he is healthy and if he's on the field to really be matched up with somebody like Justin Ross if he is healthy and playing because they're going to need somebody physical, physical that can go up and take down those jump balls that we know we're going to see. Absolutely. So that, you know, really dovetails well into, so we didn't do this with the South Carolina game because we just, it's not a matchup where we think there's a whole lot to, to, 
point this out on. So we'll be doing this in the future with the Carolina game as well. But we're each going to talk about two things we need to see from one te- the one of the teams or the other to win. So both Georgia and Clemson. So I'm going to start us off. For Georgia to win this game, I think they got to be able to block Clemson's front four. They got to be able to block that defensive line. Of course, we mentioned at the top of the show uh, or top of the segment that there are some concerns of a potential injury or a COVID situation with some of their defensive line, one or two players. So that would definitely hurt this Clemson defense if that is true. But we've talked in previous shows that front four is really, really strong. So they got Georgia's got to be able to block that front four. And of course they are returning four starters on their offensive line. So that, that really is going to be uh, a key matchup. Again, when you're in a zone running scheme on an offense in Georgia, as a defense, the best way to disrupt that is to get penetration, to break through the tidal wave that is moving as one unit as the five offensive linemen. If that's happening, it messes up the viewpoints for the running back. It messes up cutback lanes. So if they can get if if Clemson's defensive line can get penetration against Georgia's offensive line, that will disrupt that Georgia running game, which we talked about earlier. They want to establish a setup play action to, for their passing game. The next piece, I'm going to talk a little bit about Georgia's defense, what I think they need to be doing. You mentioned it, Thomas, and you're dead on with it. Georgia's defensive tackle, their nose tackle is insanely good. I never coached defense. I never played defense. I think of defense from the terms of an offensive player and coach. And what I mean by that is what defenses did to disrupt what we are trying to do on offense. Clemson is going to have a new center. Dabo has already come out and said that they are going to have to play multiple centers in this game, most likely. That's bad news for the Clemson offense. If you can get pressure with that nose tackle or a one technique, when we're talking about a one technique, if you're looking straight on at the center, eye to eye, you're in what's called a zero technique. If you're shaded one side or the other, so you're instead of you being nose to nose with him, your nose is splitting one of his eyes, his left or his right, you're in what's called the one technique. Centers hate odd fronts. What an odd front is, is when they are covered by a defensive lineman. They have a man on them. Centers prefer an even front where they aren't covered and they're either getting or giving help because that help, that means if someone's right over their nose, they got to snap and get ready to block very quickly. And that is very hard to do. So if they can get penetration, Georgia, that is, against Clemson's offensive line through that weak center point with just a nose tackle, and they don't have to start worrying about bringing linebackers and stuff like that. That's not to say they're not going to blitz, but on a regular situation, they can get disruptive in the backfield for, of Clemson with, with pressure from that defensive nose tackle pushing that center back. That sells big success for the, for the Georgia defense. And like you mentioned, SE, or excuse me, they're Secondary is relatively new. So if they don't have to commit an extra guy to the run game, that's huge. Another guy back against the pass game is really going to help there. Uh, what are the two things you need to see from Georgia to win, Thomas? Perfect, perfect segue. Um, looking at Georgia on offense, um, this goes per- exactly with what you were saying. They've got to have success in the run game. Uh, they've got to be able to – Georgia's offense is so predicated on being able to set up that play-action pass, being able to hit that deep ball – with a strong running game. They've been able to do it for years, and this year is no different because they always have this deep stable of running backs. Um, But again, as we talked about last week, this Clemson defensive front is probably the best one they've had since 2018 or the Power Ranger years. So it's going to be a tough challenge, but they've got to be able to get a push up front. They've got to be able to open up those run lanes. And 
we know as much as we've seen Clemson and as good as they are and as good as Brent Venables is, the more success you have on the ground, he's going to start bringing more pressure, more pressure. He's going to bring that box in tighter. He's going to bring the secondary up, and then you're just going to get burned over the top. So Georgia's got to have success on the ground. On the other side of the ball, defensively, they've got to limit the big plays. Clemson's offense is so predicated on a lot of window dressing, a lot of movement, motion, trying to get guys out of position, trying to get mismatches, and trying to hit those chunk plays, the big plays over the top. Georgia's got to be able to limit those, especially like we talked about earlier with the secondary being possibly a little bit questionable. They've got to be able to keep everything in front of them and play smart because and not get sucked into a lot of that window dressing and pre-snap movement because it's only going to get them out of position. So they've got to be able to limit those big plays to keep that offense in check. Absolutely. I agree with you. So, Thomas, if you had to lean one way or the other here, who who are you thinking comes out on top? That's a really tough question. Um, I guess if we're talking right here, I, I would say that uh, I'm going to give the slight edge to Georgia here because I think they're going to be able to establish that run game. And by establishing that run game, they're going to be able to keep the ball, keep it out of Clemson's hands and, and control the clock. I agree with you. I, I've really gone back and forth on this. It's a very tough decision. Clemson's a very good football team. They they really are, and they have been for years. They've established that at this point. It's, it's painful to say as a Gamecock, but it's true. Um, however, with the most recent potential news that they may be short a few guys, I was already giving Georgia a slight, slight edge. I, I think I got to go Georgia with the win here. This could potentially be one of those games that we look back on this season and go, wow, that was a heck of a game. And it really, really showed how good both these teams are. And for both these teams who have national championship ambitions, losing this game does not completely put them behind the eight ball for either one. They can still go run the table in their conference and potentially play in the playoffs this season. I got to I got to respectfully disagree with one point there. Oh. Uh, and it is just just the the nature of strength of schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, I firmly believe that if there ever was a year that one loss on Clemson's schedule could really hurt their chances for playing in the postseason with everything else that's going on with all the other teams that are ranked as highly as are is this year. I firmly believe that if Clemson is to lose this game, it's I'm not saying that it's definitely going to keep them out of the playoffs, but there's there's a better chance this year than any past year, they could run out the rest of the, their schedule, run the table, and they could still be kept out depending on what happens in the SEC. It's possible. You do have a point there. You really do. Strength of schedule. And, I mean, you know, I, I guess you're exactly right. Um, it would hurt Clemson more than it hurts Georgia. But at the end of the day, I don't think it makes it to a situation where either one of them are going, well, our, our ambition for the year is over. Certainly. Completely agree with that. All right, so we're going to keep going to the Alabama versus Miami game. This time we'll be doing both teams because we haven't done a preview of either one of these teams. I'm going to start us off talking about Miami's offense. Thomas will then talk about Miami's defense. Uh, We'll talk about Alabama's offense. He'll talk about their defense. And that's kind of our trend going throughout our show's uh, series as we get started this season. So Miami's offense, Rhett Lashley, power spread, learned underneath Gus Malzahn, played underneath Gus Malzahn in high school, and then as a walk-on for a year or two, I believe, um, at Arkansas, and then became a GA and has followed him all the way around um, until Auburn. I believe he left in 2016 and has brought that power scheme to Miami. Um, They want to get 
the quarterback involved in the running game. Think Cam Newton, think Nick Marshall at Auburn, and that's what they want to do ultimately. Thomas, help me with Miami's first name of their quarterback. Derek. Derek. Okay, I felt like that was right. I just didn't want – I got scared. I got to have a little more confidence. Derek. (laughs) Derek was second – was their second leading rusher last year for Miami. Miami had a a, a interesting – offensive season last year it was better than the year before still wasn't fantastic Gus Malzahn if you talk about the offense he built and I've heard him give this interview back when he was a high school coach and he became a high school head coach he had always been a defensive coach he really didn't have an offense in mind he literally went I'm going to look for an offense that I hate to defend and I'm going to play that offense but you know see what it is ended up he looked at a wing t book and then eventually brought it out into the spread, modernized it a little bit, incorporated a little bit more passing. But at the end of the day, it's very wing T-esque and they want to run the ball. They want to run the ball with the quarterback. They want to run the quarterback between the tackles. Of course, Derek is coming off a knee injury. And believe it or not, Thomas, this guy is coming in with his sixth year of eligibility. He has been playing college football for a very long time. (laughs) Absolutely has. And I'm really, I'm looking forward to, to seeing what he can bring to this game. Um, I think, you know, uh, Miami has uh, last year started out really, really strong and just fell off the deep end in the last three games. Um, I believe in their, in last year's three losses to Clemson, UNC, and Oklahoma State, Miami lost control very early and trailed by a combined score 49 to three after the first quarter in those three games. So they, they've really got to start, start fast in this game. Absolutely. And a part of that was their offensive line really struggled towards the end of the season to get running room. Um, Cameron Harris was their top returning uh, rusher from last year. It was a, a capable back. He's not the, the Miami, uh, the U running back of old, but he is a capable runner with, with solid blocking. This offense is tricky to stop. It can very be, be very difficult. It's hard. It's almost option-esque in a way, in my opinion, in the fact that you've got to play good assignment football. You can't go rogue. You've got to stay where you're supposed to be and not get caught up. You mentioned Clemson's window dressing, and of course their offense is you know, a close cousin, so to speak, of this Malzahn offense because it was Chad Morris who started it, and now Tony Elliott, and before him, Jeff Scott, and them together had their own spin on it. This offense has a lot of window dressing. And if you get caught up watching that window dressing, you can get out of position and all of a sudden it can get bad. So if Miami can get success in this game offensively, you're exactly right. Here's the thing. Brett Lashley at Auburn really at times had Nick Saban's defense's number um, in a couple of those games, the Iron Bowl games and whatnot. So he kind of has an idea of what it takes to beat that defense. He's just got to have the execution by his players to make it happen. Thomas, talk a little bit about their defense. Yeah, and, um, you know, as much as Lashley may know the keys to cracking that defense – this defense, this Alabama defense, may be one of the better, if not the best ones that he's faced. We're talking about this. In fact, Bama, and and we're not going to get too deep into it because, again, we, we've talked about this before and we talked about it with Kirby. 
This is this is Saban's defense, primarily a 3-4, also some 3-3-5. Three, three, he even goes a little 4-2-5, which we've talked about in some similar episodes in some earlier episodes. But this the, the linebacking core for this Alabama defense may be the best position unit in all of college football this year. You've got at we're talking four future NFL stars, pro bowlers at the linebacker position for Bama this year. Um, they're, uh, you know, you can, you can talk about all of them, but you, you're starting with outside linebacker Will Anderson, true sophomore, led the country in quarterback pressures last year with 60 as a true freshman. Uh, Henry Toa Toa, another transfer portal guy, came from Tennessee. He was very productive at Tennessee and will probably – light it up at Bama as well. Um, but really this, this defense is just, it, it just swallows offenses. And I think that with a quarterback like Derek King, you've got to be smart. You've got to have good linebackers that are going to read him. He is, he's a, a very potent runner. Um, again, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if he is hampered at all by that knee injury. Um, he's supposed to be completely recovered, but you know, time will tell on that. Um, but with, with all of the talent, the speed and the size, honestly, that Bama has at the linebacking unit, I definitely look, I definitely look for them to spy King a lot. Um, they've got to be able to make him one dimensional and keep him in the pocket. If they're going to, if they make him one dimensional and force, force Miami to beat them through the air, it's going to be a long day for Miami. I understand. I agree there. All right. So let's take a look at this Alabama offense. Um, that was the Miami offense versus the the Alabama defense. Now we're going to look at the Miami, or excuse me, the Alabama offense. So yet another offensive coordinator at Alabama who was a former head football coach that is trying to uh, right his ship, so to speak. Bill O'Brien comes from the Houston Texans, where he was previously head coach. He's obviously previously been head coach at Penn State and offensive coordinator at uh, in New England, I believe. So what I love about this system that I did not know until last year, I don't know if I heard it in a game, uh, like commentators talking about it or read it online, I can't remember which. And Thomas, I think you and I texted about this. I found out when a new offensive coordinator comes to Alabama, he doesn't bring his own system to Alabama. He learns the Alabama terminology, the Alabama formations, and then puts his spin on that to make it easier on the players. So these players who played under Sark last season, Steve, Car- Steve Sarkeesian, man, that was tough, uh, <laughs> who's, now, who's now at Texas, they are not learning new words. They're not learning new checks. They're not learning new ways of doing things. Now, the way Bill O'Brien runs things is going to be different, but the words they're going to use, the formation names, those types of things are going to be the same. I've never heard of that before until I heard that last year, and I think that is genius, genius on Nick Saban's part. And, I mean, at this point, is anybody shocked that Nick Saban's a genius? No, definitely not. And, and honestly, and, and I had I had forgotten about that as well, but it's it's absolutely true, especially with, with the revolving door that a lot of the coordinator positions are. Uh, to have continuity like that, it makes it a heck of a lot easier on your personnel as well. Absolutely. It's just, I mean, it's really smart. Really, really smart. So on offense, Bama, let's just, I'm just going to go down the list of guys they're replacing on offense. Mac Jones at quarterback, recently named the starter in New England. Jalen Waddell, who is playing for the Miami Dolphins. Devontae Smith, Heisman Trophy winner, playing for my Eagles. And um, Najee Harris with the Steelers. Alex 
Leatherwood, former offensive tackle drafted in the first round, Landon Dickerson, center, and Deontay Brown, I believe who was a guard, all, all drafted in the NFL, all having to be replaced on offense this year. But again, we're talking about Alabama. We're talking about the Alabama machine. But Thomas, just for a second, I think about all that talent and having to replace it and still being as good as Alabama is going to be. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it, it is it is the rich keep getting richer. Um, Bama has uh, – there. there's a lot of – college football powerhouses right now. And there's, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a group of four or five teams that every year, at least two of them are going to be in the college football playoffs, but none of them have the machine that Bama is and that Saban has built there. And honestly, I think it would take something, somebody really bad to, to disrupt what they've got there whenever Saban does leave, because it is just, it is just standing machine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and then you've got Alabama always has a treasure chest of running backs. Brian Robinson coming back, sophomore, uh, another sophomore phenom here in Roy Dale Williams, who had limited carries last year, but from all accounts from the spring and fall preseason has really been uh, a, a star. So again, Alabama continues to be the rich that get richer at running back. Tell us a little bit about that Miami D. You know, this could, uh, I would say Miami's defense this year is probably going to be one of the better past, past rushing defenses in the ACC. I mean, of course, Clemson is, is king of the mountain here, but, but after Clemson, very solid defense. Most of the 2020 defense returns, they do need a little bit of improvement. Um, but, you know, they were, again, they were 8-1 and one heading into the UNC game, and then UNC just rushed for over 500 yards, threw for over 200 yards. Um, but I will say that of the, particularly of the Manny Diaz era, this is probably definitely their top defensive line. They've got a lot of depth here. Um, of course, they do not have the type of depth that Bama has on the defensive line. But I will say that, as far as experience goes at the college level, this defensive line for Miami has more experience depth than Bama does. Now, granted, some of that inexperience for Bama are five stars that could probably go straight to the league out of high school because that's just the kind of talent they recruit. But um, you've got their safety, Bubba Bolden, coming back. Leading tackler last year was 74 um, their defensive lineman, Nesta Silvera, I believe. Now I'm having trouble with some names. Um, <laughs> This guy is a force in the middle, um, gives a big push at the middle. He's going to draw a lot of double teams. Um, he was one of the reasons last year that Miami's defensive ends had such, such success setting the edge and getting to the, corner, to the quarterback last year because he was clogging up the middle, getting a big push, could disrupt that running game. But again, against this offensive line with Bama, it's going to be tough to get that push, and they're going to have to get that push up front to really disrupt that Alabama running game. Absolutely. Um, so now we'll move into to two things I think Miami has to do to, to find a way to win this game. First and foremost, we've talked a lot about uh, the Alabama defense and particularly their defensive front seven, uh, front eight at times, but find a way to block Bama find a way to block them and establish the run because that is what this offense is predicated on. Find a way to get the ball and run it. Um, stay on schedule on down and distance. What do I mean by that? When you talk about football, coaches talk about staying on schedule. What that means is not getting into second and long, not getting into third and long. 
that changes the plays you're looking at in your playbook or on your play sheet on a Saturday. If you're on schedule and you've gained at least two or three yards on second down and you're looking at second and seven or second and six, the the series of plays you're going to look at are a lot more varied than if you're at second and 12, second and 14, same with third and long. So if they can keep themselves on schedule and stay in second and manageable, third and manageable, and have access to their entire playbook, that's going to be a reason for success. But that is, I'm going to step on here, What who I think is going to win. That's not extremely likely. Tell, tell uh, the folks, Thomas, what you think Miami's got to do to win. Two things. I mentioned it earlier. They got to start fast. Uh, things got out of hand for them in a lot of those in, in all of those losses last year. So they got to start fast, keep the foot on the gas, and keep moving. Uh, they've got to win the turnover bet battle. Honestly, Miami could play flawless football in this game, and Bama could have a couple mistakes. But but they've still got to have the ball bounce their way a little bit more. They've got to win that turnover battle. Let's not forget about one of the X factors here: the new DB coach at Miami, who has won Travaris Robinson. Uh-huh. As Gamecock fans, everybody remembers Travaris Robinson, who preaches who preaches getting a lot of turnovers. Now, granted, we didn't get a lot under him, but that's <laughs> a story for another pod. But I will say that Miami has been pretty impressive with a lot of forced fumbles. You've got a smaller quarterback in Bryce Young, six foot, 195 pounds. A lot of times strip sacks can be a concern for smaller quarterbacks. All right, absolutely. So two things for Bama to win. You just brought up Bryce Young, who I meant to mention earlier when I was talking about the Alabama offense. Um, you mentioned he comes in at six foot, 194 pounds. Um, he is not the polished passer that Mac Jones was um, or that uh, Tua was towards the end of his time at Alabama. So they need some simple passes. So they got to run the ball and run the ball successfully, which is always a big key of the Alabama offense to give him easier throws, set up an opportunity for play action or where, you know, a linebacker is going to get out of position or a DB is going to be caught looking in the backfield or coming up to try and stop him and give him an easy dump off pass. So that's a big thing. Run the ball and give young easy passes Uh, on defense. Very simply, play Bama football, play the, the the defensive scheme that Nick Saban has been doing for years, be the team, the disciplined, athletic, attacking team that they are. And I, I think that that will be a huge success for Bama. What do you think Bama's got to do to win this game? Uh, I think you said it perfectly. It's, it's just play Bama football. Number one, they've got to win the battles in the trenches, which I think they will. They've just got the depth and the size to do that. And then really – King for Miami's offense, who can be the X factor here as well. Got to make him one dimensional. Got to keep him in the pocket. Keep a spy on him. Do not let him beat you with his legs. And if they can shut him down and make him one dimensional, then Bama should have a pretty easy one here. Absolutely. So we've both kind of hinted easily at who we think's winning this game. I think we both think it's Bama. Um, I'd say it's it's relatively comfortable 10 ish points, maybe 17. Um, but you know, I think Miami is on the way up, but I don't think they're quite to Bama yet. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, they, they've got the, you know, Manny Diaz has got a lot of, a lot of work there to do, but I think he's doing things the right way and they're going to get there. Um, but the, the, the thing that kind of sucks for them is, um, yeah, Florida state's down, but UNC is rising up again. Uh, so they've got to get while they can and get after it. 
Absolutely. Um, it would be fun if, the, if, you know, we talk about those mythical football games, if you could have like the 2001 Miami team that had all those players on it against one of these top Bama teams of the past several years, even last year with all the NFL talent I just mentioned being drafted on offense. And you mentioned some of the defensive players, that'd be a heck of a, you know, imaginary matchup there. Um, unfortunately, uh, those guys aren't walking through the door for Miami. And uh, I think Bama comes away with it here. Yep. Yep. I agree, man. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be good. I'm excited for uh, a lot of these games. I'm really excited about the Georgia Clemson game. I did forget to mention, and I want to leave the listeners with this, um, uh, a fun little stat that I saw earlier. The last time that Georgia lost a season opener was in 2013 at Clemson. Ooh. The last time that Clemson, the last time that Clemson lost an opener was 2014 at Georgia. Nice. See, guys, this is the kind of stuff you get at the Slightly Above Average Football Fan Podcast. So that brings me to this point. Make sure and follow us on social media at SAA Football Fan, at SAA Football Fan on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find us on Facebook at the Slightly Above Average Football Fan Podcast page. And you can download, listen to, rate, and review our podcast on all your favorite uh, podcast platforms. We are so excited. Football season is around the corner. Thank you for listening tonight. Bowen, as always, it was a great time. Looking forward to it. Great weekend, and I hope we make it out alive, and we'll be back next week. Sounds great. Sounds great.